I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Today's episode will explore a view on U.S.-China relations. In the last decade, the U.S.-China relationship has been mired by not only economic measures such as trade wars and tariffs, but also by political tensions. More recently, Speaker Nancy Pelosi's August visit to Taiwan caused China to engage in unprecedented military exercises around Taiwan. How should we understand current U.S.-China relations? Is it still possible to dial back tensions between the two countries? Joining us to discuss the U.S.-China relationship is Dr. Jessica Chen Weiss, who is the Michael J. Zak Professor for China and Asia Pacific Studies at Cornell University. From August 2021 to July 2022, she served as a senior advisor to the Secretary's Policy Planning Staff at the U.S. Department of State. She was on a Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs Fellowship for tenured IR scholars. Her research focuses on Chinese politics and foreign relations, with an emphasis on nationalism and public opinion, specifically on the connection between domestic politics and international relations. Dr. Weiss recently published a piece in Foreign Affairs titled "The China Trap: U.S. Foreign Policy and the Perilous Logic of Zero-Sum Competition." Thank you so much for joining us today, Jessica. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So I wanted to focus our discussion on the broader U.S.-China relationship,、uh, particularly given your recent, relatively lengthy—I would—I—I don't know if I would call it unprecedented length foreign affairs article, but it's definitely near one of the longer foreign affairs articles, which showcases the importance that foreign affairs attached to your article, which addressed the broader U.S.-China relationship. Maybe we can start off there by getting your perspective on how you view the current state of U.S.-China relations. Would you say that we are currently at a historic low point between the two countries? So, first of all, it's really great to be here.、Um, I have tremendous respect for your work, and I'm delighted to see what you're building here. I think that we're frankly on a very dangerous trajectory.、Um, I think it's one that has a, a growing risk of even catastrophic conflict. Although both sides, both Beijing and Washington, you know, appear committed to talking to each other and keeping channels of communication open, I think it still remains unclear how productive these exchanges are beyond delivering messages, which is definitely important. But in the broader context, both sides seem increasingly bent on outcompeting the other and believing that each side respects only strength and interprets restraint as weakness, which. I think only fuels the sort of escalatory spiral、uh, that we are currently in. Now, I think to be clear, it's really important to note that I think that we're in a better place as a nation for the achievements of the Biden administration.、And、it was really an honor and a privilege to serve alongside、uh, public servants and officials who every day show up to make the world a better place. And I think it's important also to note that、uh, you know recent legislative wins have shown that American democracy can still deliver. And it'll be really crucial, I think, to affirming and building upon this in the midterms. But I think still, you know, we as a nation may only have a narrow window to make the kind of progress we need to prevent catastrophe and work toward terms of coexistence within an inclusive international system that will secure U.S. interests and values even as global power shifts and evolves. So my hope in writing this essay was for it to spark further conversation as well as a. Broad, bipartisan, even effort to rebuild a domestic consensus on how it is the United States relates to the world on terms that aren't only defined by beating China. 
And so whether or not you agree or disagree with uh, the specific steps that I, I identify in the piece, I hope that we can have this conversation because it's so vital for not only our democracy, um, but for the future trajectory of uh, U.S.-China relations. On the question of like whether or not U.S.-China relations are at a historic low, I think it is also important to recognize that even as I like foresee a very dangerous place that we are going, it's a little bit more mixed as you go issue by issue. So, for example, in the ideological domain, if you will, the Biden administration has made it explicit that it doesn't seek to change China's system, but it has also adopted the framework of a global struggle between autocracy and democracy. And I think I would think that Beijing sees the Biden administration as more committed to this ideological framing than its predecessor. But in other areas, there have been efforts to pull back from the precipice and work out differences. So the recent audit agreement, for example, may slow the pace of delisting and financial decoupling. And in the climate space, there had been some headway John Kerry had made, including a joint declaration at last year's climate summit. So I would say that, yes, we are in a pretty low place and it's unclear where the floor will be. What is that steady state we have yet to define? Um, but I wouldn't say that across the board, everything is worse now than it was you know, two years ago. Thank you, Jessica. Your foreign affairs piece warned that there is a narrow window of opportunity by which the two sides could work with each other to avoid potential crises or conflicts. I'd love for you to recap for our listeners what were some of the main points in your foreign affairs piece and key recommendations. So the main point that I wanted to make was that when we think about U.S.-China relations and the goals of U.S. foreign policy, I see the broader conversation in Washington on the Hill and in think tanks is a lot about uh, doing better than China, outcompeting China. But that to me doesn't suggest a specific set of terms on which we should compete or even on what issues and what areas and what regions of the world uh, we ought to prioritize. And so by defining success in terms of beating China, I think we often lose sight of the affirmative interests and values that should be guiding uh, American foreign policy. And so, um, you know, one question you might ask is like, how successful has the United States been in encountering China's growing power? And that question itself, I think, sort of begs the question, what is the definition of success? Is it weakening China? Is it changing China's behavior? I would say that the administration has sought to strengthen the United States competitive position to shape the environment around China, to balance and bound it. And it has been much more effective uh, at working with allies and partners in the Trump administration. But I think the ultimate question is, has that changed China's behavior for the better? And arguably, I think it is also, ex even though it has maybe strengthened the United States competitive position, it's also, in doing so, accelerated Beijing's belief that it needs to be less vulnerable to U.S.-led sanctions and restrictions by building its own mini-lateral, multilateral coalitions, as we see with the BRICS or the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And that effort uh, has prodded Beijing to increasingly aim at discrediting U.S. leadership within the multilateral system. So a big takeaway uh, is that we are in an action-reaction spiral uh, that is undermining uh, the already eroded foundations of international order and global governance. Um, and it is putting us in an increasingly dangerous place, um, risking, I think, most pressingly a potential crisis or conflict over Taiwan. Um, but even if we're able to escape a crisis there, although I know that you and others have written about the fourth Taiwan Strait crisis, and this is a slow moving uh, crisis, we are also likely to see you know, growing China-Russia ties uh, to the detriment of the United States strategic position. 
and and ultimately progress on shared uh, you know global challenges likely be crowded out um, by these growing geopolitical tensions. I think lastly, a, a really important point that I make here is that the growing effort to outcompete China, I think, is also likely to have uh, potentially damaging effects on our democracy at home. This effort to, you know, be seen as at least as tough as the next guy on China, I think, has made it harder uh, to have a kind of vigorous uh, domestic policy discussion about what we should do about the China challenge. And if you look at uh, history, this has also had a pretty, you know, damaging effect when we've had an external enemy that we've thrown all of our resources at, often had, you know, done more to, to divide and undermine American democracy than it has um, in effectively countering uh, the enemy's influence within. So I would just say that those are some cautionary notes, and we're seeing that effect already in terms of the chilling effect of efforts to combat Chinese influence on uh, the United States as a magnet for international uh, investment and talent, um, which you may, uh, you know, is arguably one of the most critical uh, components of the tech competition. Thank you, Jessica. There's just so much to follow up on with respect to the points you just mentioned. Let's first talk a bit about one of the main points in your piece, and that's the action-reaction cycle. Your article mentions a number of actions taken by the U.S. side, specifically the Trump administration, that prompted a PRC reaction. From your perspective, what are some of the major actions, including problematic activities, that China has taken that has resulted in a U.S. reaction? Well, there's a lot of areas in which, and I've written about this previously, where you might say that you know these are our own goals that, that China is you know, even if you know, China is seeking you know, greater security and development, the ways in which it is pursuing it are actually detrimental to those objectives from even a Chinese perspective. I, and that really runs the gamut, whether it's, you know, increasing Chinese coercion against Taiwan, making, you know, people in Taiwan all the more, you know, repulsed by the Chinese political system to the you know, egregious uh, human rights violations and abuses in Xinjiang, of course, that has sparked a whole, you know, backlash and outcry around the world to, you know, Made in China 2025. But there's so many different initiatives that the United States and other countries are reacting to. Wolf Warrior Diplomacy is another good example of areas where, you know, you know, China wants to cultivate its international leadership, particularly among developed countries. It's going to need to uh, retool that mix of, I think, coercion, uh, denigration, intimidation with a lot more in the way of, of persuasion and a, appeal, um, because frankly, it's not doing very well at all on that count. So Jessica, one of the areas that you focus on in your foreign affairs piece is Taiwan. And I know you were also working quite a bit on Taiwan when you were at state policy planning. Could you talk a bit more about how you view current U.S. policy on Taiwan, as well as Chinese policy towards Taiwan? I know your piece was published before Speaker Pelosi's visit to the island. Does her visit change anything? Does it change any of your analysis? Did you expect China to take the type of action it did after uh, Speaker Pelosi went to Taiwan? So a lot of what evolved, I think, after her visit was anticipated. I think that what we haven't seen so far is the kind of mutual action reaction that has led to a full-blown crisis. The United States, I think, to the Biden administration's credit, has taken a pretty tempered approach so far to avert the risk of something uh, kinetic in the moment. The question, I think, going forward is, 
what will the United States and its allies and partners do to ensure that China knows that the United States will continue to you know, fly and sail wherever international law allows, and that we're not bowing um, before a Chinese pressure. So despite the fact that we managed to get through Speaker Pelosi's visit and even um, subsequent um, visits by congressional delegations, I think there is still growing concern that certainly in the broader public conversation in the United States that war is coming. If not now, in the New York Times reported that in the 18 months, there could be some kind of move that China would make more maybe a squeeze than an invasion, according to one member of Congress. Um, and I think that China's response to Pelosi's visit has revealed elements of what that could look like, which are actions short of war that are used to encircle and, and punish Taiwan. And some have argued that Beijing used uh, Pelosi's visit to really as a pretext for what it was planning to do anyway. But in my view, that argument implies to some extent a, a sort of a false inevitability and fatalism that I think could be uh, self-fulfilling. It implies that nothing can be done to deter or dissuade Beijing. And so I think it's important to, to recognize that, you know, she has not set a specific timetable for invasion, only capability targets. But I think, you know, Beijing sees the writing on the wall in terms of political trends on Taiwan, as well as what is perceived as a U.S., you know, growing U.S. support for Taiwan, even some amongst some politicians, not inside the administration, but outside support for uh, Taiwan's eventual independence. Um, and so... There's, I think, a strong desire in the United States to show support for Taiwan and make clear that, you know, China's bullying will not pay. But the question is now how to bolster, I think, deterrence across the Taiwan Strait, um, given that, you know, Beijing used Pelosi's visit to further erode the status quo. But in my view, you know, beyond that kind of minimum presence necessary to demonstrate that the United States will continue to operate wherever our international law allows, more symbolic visits, military exercises, even weapons sales weren't going to fundamentally alter this action-reaction dynamic. It may be slower or faster depending on the pace of developments. And so really, in my view, this effort to bolster deterrence is going to fail if these threats are not accompanied by clear and credible assurances that U.S. support for Taiwan is not aimed at ensuring uh, Taiwan's permanent separation or eventual independence. And so symbolic steps to upgrade you know, U.S. diplomatic treatment of Taiwan, for example, in the Taiwan Policy Act, would do the opposite, you know, doing much more to provoke than deter Beijing, almost like like waving a red flag in front of the bull, if you will. And so, you know, I think that there's a still a chance that direct diplomacy could extend the life of the sort of one China cross-strait framework that's worked for 50 years. And I think that that you know, the anticipated meeting between Biden and Xi in November could be an important opportunity to test some of the ideas, the proposition that these sort of reciprocal steps, tacit understanding, could lower tension and lower the temperature, assuming it, uh, it is undertaken by both sides. This is not about making unilateral accommodations, but really credibly recommitting to uh, uncoerced, uh, peaceful resolution of differences across the Taiwan Straits, not on any particular timeline, just, you know, allowing that still to be possible, which I feel like um, many doubt. You write in your foreign affairs piece that Washington should avoid characterizing Taiwan as a vital asset for U.S. interests. How do you think Washington should characterize Taiwan? How should we broadly cast our messaging on our Taiwan policy? I mean, I think it's really important to emphasize the importance of peace and stability uh, in the Taiwan Strait, as the administration has doing. We, the United States should not you know, take a stance on, you know, Taiwan's status. Uh, it should not take a stance on changing that. 
uh, what's worked for so long. Uh, ultimately, really, it's it's preventing war that's in our interest or conflict short of it, because, you know, it's really unclear from recent research how that war would pan out. And regardless of who might ultimately win, everybody would lose, most especially uh, Taiwan. So, you know, in this moment, I think that both the United States and China could really use some time internationally to, to deal with our respective domestic challenges. Even if that those, you know, we need to rebuild our domestic strengths in order to compete with each other more effectively. Uh, right now, that kind of the escalation of tensions across the Taiwan Strait is serving nobody. And so we should be looking for ways to um, maintain and bolster the status quo that's served everyone so well. Do you think there could have been any actions that the U.S. government could have done prior to Speaker Pelosi's visit? short of calling it off, that could have changed Beijing's reactions if she was going to go? I mean, I think that there are some steps that could have been taken. I mean, I don't know whether or not they were tried, but I think that given that she was going to go or there was, you know, given separation of, you know, separate but co-equal branch of government, there wasn't an interest in telling her not to go. I think that one could have tried to do what essentially I've recommended now, but do that beforehand which would help offset and perhaps, uh, you know, condition what we have seen, which is like a relatively so far restrained response on reciprocal restraint by Beijing, knowing that the Pelosi visit was coming. And so, you know, given where we are now, it seems to me that it would have been better to do that before, but still now is better than not at all. Because even though I think there are good reasons to say, well, you need to conduct some more exercises, you know, near Taiwan to show that we're still resolved, et cetera, and China hasn't changed the status quo, eventually China will respond to those. And so it's it, it will continue this sort of tit for tat, I think. But one could imagine, uh, you know, sort of a quiet, tacit, uh, reciprocal understanding that, for example, you know, the United States under this administration has not yet sent a cabinet uh, member to the island. But what are the conditions under which that restraint could continue to hold, it could be predicated on some reciprocal restraints of a different sort, but nonetheless, certain behaviors we would expect from Beijing in order to, and that's the flavor of it. I don't know if that's specifically what you wouldn't want to propose, but there are a lot of different actions that could be, you know, if done in a kind of tacit or reciprocal fashion, could help establish bounds around uh, this one China framework um, and allow it to continue to survive. So in terms of reciprocal restraint, and particularly as we're talking about U.S. and Chinese military activities in and around the Taiwan Strait, do you think that's still possible now after the military exercise that China just demonstrated? I think it's always harder to pull back something that is already taking place, but that's true, I think, on both sides. And so the burden would be then, you know, to identify things that both sides could visibly see the other side doing and reducing. And it might just be leveling off, honestly. Um, leveling off at the current, albeit degraded uh, status quo, would be better than further, right? Further steps that each side would take. And so I think the sooner we can figure out a way to level off, the better. And if if you could even achieve a leveling off or a plateau uh, in operations, then perhaps once there has been that kind of reciprocity established, there could also be step by step, a gradual uh, reduction. I'm not saying that this is going to happen overnight, but I think even getting to the mindset of thinking in this way could, if reciprocated on the other side, um, could be uh, viable. 
I want to zoom out a bit and go back to the discussion of the overall U.S.-China relationship. In particular, how important is Taiwan for the overall U.S.-China relationship? Are there other major errors in the relationship that, if we got right or maybe improved U.S.-China relations on those issues, we could set the course of the relationship? Or is Taiwan such a central issue in the relationship that if we don't get it right, it doesn't matter if we make progress in other areas of the relationship? It's a tough question and a good one. I think that certainly Taiwan looms the largest, but that doesn't mean that we should not try to get other parts of the relationship right, even as this. Remains a centrally challenging issue to to grapple with and manage because I don't think the Taiwan issue is going to be resolved, and so the question is: It's going to be how is it going to be managed? And right now, it's not being. It's the actions really on all sides. This is not to say that Taipei plays no role in this. Obviously, as you know, um, this is not a just a an issue in which there are two sides. But I do think that as Beijing has said, and I think believes the United States to be using Taiwan as an Issue to control or contain China. Given that's per Beijing's perception, I think it makes、uh, managing all the other issues in the relationship that much harder. And so there, there may be you know, very specific issues on which we could make kind of incremental progress, even as this issue looms large. But I think that you've seen in, in Beijing's response to Pelosi's visit that it is going to be increasingly difficult、uh, to do so. Are there other issues beyond Taiwan that you think we should make progress on? And particularly issues that you believe, if we make progress on, it could have quite a substantial impact on overall U.S.-China relations. First of all, I think it's really important that the United States and China continue to try to figure out terms of coexistence in the international system.、Um, this is, you know, an area in which, if the United States and China can figure it out, it both benefits the world,、um, but also I think will help alleviate the. You know, really perennial concern in Beijing that the United States cannot accept China as a you know a near peer rival or you know superpower in the system.、Um, you know, this be very difficult because I think that there's right now, as I noted in the piece, an effort to、uh, you know cast aspersions on every initiative that the other、uh, each side、uh, is is inaugurating,、um, which is having this pernicious effect on the international order. That said, I think that there are signs that、um, the two sides can work together.、Um, for example, in the you know G20 you know common framework、uh, you know for debt relief, or you know the WTO made、um, some progress recently on fishing subsidies and COVID nineteen vaccines. And so, you know, these are very small signs that this inclusive multilateralism can still work.、Um, but the more I think that the United States can drive progress in inclusive forms. I think the greater a sigh of relief the world will、uh, give that when the United States and China are fighting, not all of the grass needs to get trampled, to put a spin on that phrase. And so that kind of figuring out terms of coexistence that we could both live with in the international order, what rules we could both agree to abide by, and you know we're not there yet. Obviously, we're far from it, and this is not. Me recommending we just sort of cede influence to China here, here, and here. It's more about negotiating the terms on which we would be happy with, or welcome, or even tolerate a greater Chinese rule in various aspects, and and vice versa. And so, I think that effort should it make you know the more progress is made on that front, the easier a time one would have、um, at saying not trying to use Taiwan to contain China's development. Right, that we are actually okay. 
with the status quo, which is to say that we would accept any outcome that is arrived at peacefully across the Taiwan Strait. And we do not have a, our finger on the scale there in terms of desiring Taiwan's independence. In terms of your assessment of where U.S.-China relations is headed, as well as your assessment of problems within the U.S. system of where we're trying to outcompete China, do you believe that Chinese analysts share this assessment? Uh, do they identify the same problems that you do with respect to U.S.-China relations? Well, I think that there's a sort of a mirror image um, where in the narrative in Washington is that you know China has changed, and the narrative in China is that the United States has never changed from its you know desire to uh, undermine uh, China's rise and contain its development. So I, I think that the in general the sense is like it's all the U.S. fault. Uh, China's innocent. All this. So no, I don't think that the average. The median in China shares this view, but I do think that there are, China's a huge place. So there are people who I think see the kind of interaction between the United States and China. And I think the, the, the big question is whether or not, you know, for this kind of a framework to work, it does require reciprocal restraint. And, you know, it's, I think there's no guarantee that I think that would happen, and but it, but it would, I think it's worth testing the proposition that some of what China is doing is a reaction in part to what we are doing. Because if that's the case, then you can have this kind of uh, reciprocal steps toward detente. I want to look a bit more forward now. And one of the major events that we're all watching is the upcoming 20th Party Congress in China. As you look at this important Chinese leadership event, how do you see China coming out of this? And do you see major changes in Chinese foreign policy that could significantly impact U.S.-China relations? Some assess that China could become more assertive and more aggressive after the 20th Party Congress, particularly as she consolidates and is able to have a third term. What are your thoughts on this? I think it's really hard to know exactly what we're going to see. I think there's a couple things push in different directions. I think after the 20th Party Congress, assuming that she secures a third term, as we all expect, you might see a little bit less risk aversion or concern about the consequences of something, the blowing back. But you also might have less pressure or perceived pressure to demonstrate China's toughness or competence or Xi's own leadership, because he doesn't have a sort of imminent deadline or re-election, if you will. And so that could be taking more risks, but in different ways, right? That could mean taking more risks in terms of moving away from zero COVID. That could also mean taking more risks in terms of moving against Taiwan or So I don't know what the net effect of that will be. I think I'm, if anything, a little skeptical that we know very well what the impact of the domestic political calendar is on Xi Jinping's thinking. Um, And so I would caution against shaping our policy too much or tailoring it to that political calendar inside China, because we might miss opportunities that we might have not thought were there, but we may also exacerbate things by assuming that for example, we could you know, act with um, impunity prior to him taking a third term, assuming that he would be you know, more cautious, I think, beforehand. That, I think, idea has had to be updated in light of events. And so I think we should be similarly circumspect about what we forecast going forward. Your recent article also had significant recommendations for what the United States should do moving forward. I know we've already talked a little bit about this in terms of reciprocal restraint and other measures. You also talk in your article about how to better define what success looks like for U.S.-China relations. 
I wanted to get your thoughts as we look forward, say the next five to 10 years. Given the current state of the relationship, what do you think could be possible in terms of goals that we could set on each side to help transform the relationship to be a more positive one? Big question. I think that, you know, first putting a floor beneath the relationship is something that I think both sides are interested in seeing. The question is, you know, to what extent can we decide what steps we would be willing to take uh, and would they be willing in turn to take uh, to kind of bound the competition and, and put limits on what we are willing to do and they are willing to and prepared to do uh, in the name of out-competing the other. I think that's that's critical and that's that, that requires... I think having a coming together ourselves, first of all, foremost, to figure out, you know, what are our red lines? What are the things that we really care about? Where we must absolutely oppose Chinese behavior, what we could tolerate and, and where we could welcome it. I think we also need to have a sense of, you know, how it is the United States wants to relate to the world and what that future that we want to inhabit looks like. We have a lot of tools at our disposal, but I, I what that adds up to whether the sanctions, the tariffs, the restrictions, like what is the society that we, the United States, are becoming and want to be uh, in the future? That, I think, remains a little bit less. We're sort of figuring that out in the doing, but it means that we don't really know where we're going. And I think that this is not just about what's a conversation that's happening inside any particular administration. In order for the United States to be credible long term, five to 10 years, this has to be uh, an effort that extends across parties outside of, you know, across the aisle. And of course, you know, in this polarized environment, it may not be everybody, but what would a bipartisan consensus look like that isn't just about beating China? What would a bipartisan consensus look like for the, the future of our democracy and how it relates to the world um, on terms that would allow for um, an inclusive and more habitable planet, I think would be, would be really important. Would this require, to some extent, scaling down or limiting of U.S. activities, perhaps what some might call concessions. But we have to recognize that there are some Chinese interests that we have to be respectful of or at least decrease our activities to avoid the more sensitive Chinese areas. As I said, I think when we talked about Taiwan too, I wouldn't start with concessions. I would start with what are the limits on future actions that we are planning to take? Because we haven't taken them yet. And I think that the framework going forward in terms of what I think of it as, you know, the affirmative vision that can discipline competition or the discipline, the lines of effort that we might want to take with an eye toward first getting results and being consistent with the kind of society, the kind of norms and rules that we want to stand for, the world that we want to see. And so I think that that often requires taking a very hard look at the punitive uh, or protective uh, lines of effort that we unilaterally undertake, making sure, first of all, that they are, you know, to what extent these can advance our interests? Are they, to what extent do our allies and partners around the world share a desire to implement those same restrictions? Because otherwise they're not going to be that effective. We also think about, you know, oftentimes we like, well, we have to do something because that is so horrible. But on the other hand, if the doing the thing sanctions or whatnot, doesn't actually change the behavior and it's just a symbolic gesture, then we should think about, well, what kinds of symbolic statements on principle when we stand up for human rights or whatnot, what are the kinds of efforts that will be uh, not, like, how do we minimize the backlash, both to the system that we want to see, but also in terms of how that registers in and outside of China as well, so that we are seen as maximally consistent and, and not 
hypocritical in some instances, too, when we think about what it is that we're criticizing. In terms of protective or punitive U.S. actions, such as sanctions, my understanding is that they're usually taken by the U.S. side to signal our displeasure as well as opposition to different actions or positions that China has taken. You mentioned that we should be more careful in embracing these actions, but what are the alternatives to them that could have the same signal or send the same type of message to China? I mean, this is an area I think that is like deserves a lot more thought, and I have not focused on this area in particular in my research. That said, I think that there are a lot of countries around the world that don't use sanctions as liberally as the United States does. And so there are many countries, governments, leaders that have found ways of taking principled stands that don't necessarily involve quite the same level of unilateral punitive effort. I think also when when I talk about making sure that our punitive or protective efforts are kind of oriented at the results that we want them to have, we also have to think, as I said, really hard about kind of the signal that it sends to citizens in our own society, that many of the efforts to protect against, and in many cases, intrusions of whether it's Chinese influence or espionage into our society are also chilling the very thing, having a chilling effect on the very thing it is that we want to nurture, which is the United States is a, a magnet for international talent and investment and incubator of some of the most innovative ideas. You don't want to, whatever, kill the goose that lays the egg or whatnot, right, by uh, trying to put up a wall, put up a wall is probably the wrong word, but you know, these things that make it seem, as the surveys make very clear, that uh, actions that make the United States seem less welcoming are, uh, you know, really counterproductive, ultimately, even if they're well-intentioned. Jessica, I know you've done extensive research on Chinese nationalism and how that both drives and doesn't drive Chinese foreign policy. So as you look at how China responded to uh, Speaker Pelosi's visit, we saw there were a lot of calls within China for the PLA to take stronger and even harsher measures against the United States and Taiwan. Given this environment in China, do you think it's still possible that China could reciprocate U.S. gestures of goodwill? You mentioned the need for reciprocal restraint, but is that something that the Chinese government could embrace given how nationalistic the Chinese public is and the extent to which the Chinese public could influence Beijing's decision-making? That's a really excellent question. I think uh, of the two countries, I think that the nationalism in China is somewhat more manageable uh, as a force that would prevent the kind of steps that we're talking about. And I say that in part because... As you know, you know China has an incredibly strong uh, repressive apparatus, and if desired, could orchestrate uh, and explain the measures that the government was taking. And the fact that they have allowed as much kind of nationalist vitriol and pressure to build is, in part, I think, a strategic choice by the leadership in China to show resolve. It's part of that uh, calculus, and so if there were ever to be a point at which the two sides agreed to do something that looked a little bit less escalatory, maybe, again, the level off uh, tensions. But I think what happened is that the issue would become less prominent. There would be lots of other things to rail against and to get, you know, to, to occupy uh, the public's attention. And so it would be a, a process of managing those expectations to prevent them from um, boiling over. Thank you, Jessica. In the interest of time, we'll have to wrap up this podcast, but let me ask you one final question. Given the politics in the United States, 
To what extent do you think the recommendations you provided in your foreign affairs article could be embraced by the Biden administration or whatever administration might follow, whether Democratic or Republican? Thanks. I think it's a really important question. And I, and I, I hear the skeptics who say that this is too politically dangerous for the leadership on really on either side uh, to embrace. But what I would say here is that I, I think that the current trajectory that we're on isn't going to prevent that kind of criticism that, oh, you know, so-and-so is being soft on China or is going to temper the kind of backlash from, you know, hyper-nationalistic citizens who have like inflated expectations about what could be accomplished. And I think that at least in the United States and this democracy, I think we as citizens really get to decide, you know, what it is that we want from our elected leaders. And so part of the reason that I wrote this piece was to help shape that broader political conversation where such a thing might seem possible and maybe even wise. Because if you look at the costs of the current trajectory, you might think, well, this isn't really heading in a direction that any of us is prepared to stomach. And so and I think in, in resisting the kind of fatalism that I point out here, I think we can help create the, the conditions necessary to at least test the proposition that we could you know, halt a coming catastrophe before it's too late. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Jessica. And I think we're both on the same page, as well as probably most of our listeners, that no one wants a U.S.-China conflict. So thank you so much for sharing your insights on how to potentially avoid a crisis or conflict in U.S.-China relations. Thanks so much, Bonnie. I just hope this is the start of a much broader conversation, and I look forward to it. <laughs>